we're going to talk about friendships and relationships in this chapter of, of Proverbs. And um, I'll get more into this in a few minutes, but I think Hezekiah's men actually pulled it together this way. By the way, when it says Hezekiah's men, or the men of Hezekiah back in Proverbs 25, what's interesting, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, Translated before Jesus came, back about 250, 280, somewhere years before Christ came, the Septuagint, that Greek translation, first other uh, language translation of the Hebrew Scriptures was there in Greek. And in the Septuagint, in Proverbs 25, verse 1, it says, the friends of Hezekiah. Now, I'm not sure why they translated it friends instead of men, but I'll tell you, it's timely for this evening because chapter 27, you could call a manual for friendship. And there are many different nuances and subtleties in here that we're going to look at. A couple I really had to dig to understand. What is he saying here? And I think you'll find them really encouraging. Um, But, boy, it's encouraging to me just to be among friends in Christ, isn't it? It's just a good place to be. Here you all just chattering and saying hi and keeping the hugs holy. I appreciate that. So, uh, wow, good good to have everybody here tonight. Let's, Let's pray and we'll get into the Word. Father, you are such a, a good father to us. Um, Lord, we, we recognize, we see in your heart your desire for your children to be together and to gather around you, um, to gather around your throne in worship, uh, at your feet in teaching, Lord, as we all sit here before you to hear from your spirit. Um, and Father, what a glorious day it will be when we're all together finally and, and at last with you in heaven. Uh, when we get to join you, Jesus, there. And when all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and not only in the bridge, but in your entire church family, Father, are gathered together in that place. What a joy. How marvelous it will be. There will be no uh, breakdowns, no differences, no different churches or groups, Father. Just one big, happy family. And I look forward to that, Lord. It will be a good day. But tonight is a good night, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you will bless the teaching of your word to our hearts. And help us, Lord Jesus, to, uh, to take these things in, to understand them, and to be nourished and fed by them. And then to be changed as well. In behavior, in heart, in faith, Father. By the power of your Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Evolutionary biologists... David Sloan Wilson classifies Christian churches in one of two ways. This comes out of a, of a Christian publication called First Things that uh, Jim Daly apparently gets. And, and Rachel, after Sunday's teaching, sent this off to me, emailed it. And I, and I sent back and said, tell me where you got this. Give me more. I want more. And so uh, I looked this up, and it's very interesting. And let me just share you, with you what, what Rachel sent to me. Again, evolutionary biologist, not a Christian man, but a man by the name of David Sloan Wilson classifies Christian churches as either open, meaning free form, elective in faith and morals, you know, loosey-goosey, <laughs> or closed, which he terms as Bible-based conservative churches. So let me be clear, in case you were wondering, we would be a closed church. All right. (laughs) Although he claims scientific objectivity as an atheist, he can't figure out why these closed churches are growing, while the open ones are dying. 
Maybe, he says, economic uncertainty leads people to seek authoritarian solidarity in their churches rather than mind-liberating tolerance. (laughs) Big words that don't mean a whole lot. He says, or, or maybe, actually they say, we'd argue, maybe, even the most syncretistic religion, that is churches that invite anything, universalistic, The most syncretistic religion has to give its adherents a reason to prefer its brand of anything goes. And you listen to this. And the open churches can't do this. The open churches where anything goes can't give their constituents, if you will, a reason to come. They go on and they say, if being a Christian is indistinguishable from being a New York Times columnist, except that Christians get up early on Sundays, why not sleep in and get the Times delivered to your front door? When the entire culture is open, it's small wonder open churches don't get many bodies walking through their open doors. What are they saying? That in an open church, it's no different than culture, so why go? Why waste your time if you can get it on TV, if you can get it at work, if you can get it in the marketplace? Why go to a church that is the same as everything in culture? It's no different. Don't waste your time. And they suggest this is why the so-called closed churches, that is, churches that believe in absolutes, that's why they are growing as opposed to the open churches not. They closed the article saying this, We can't help but think of an accidentally ironic reader board we saw in front of a particularly empty church that said, We welcome you with open pews. (laughs) In any relationship, be it a marital relationship, a familial relationship, business, professional relationship, society, or even the church, in any relationship where anything goes, you end up with no idea where you're going. And that's the problem. And that's the issue. Rather than the church, which gives us some set of standards and rules and absolutes, they're not just made up. They're standards that work. They're absolutes that we know are true in our heart of hearts. They connect with us and we with them. So that we would not be lost and confused and wandering in this apparent openness. And so the so-called closed church, the Bible-based established church, is established on absolutes. The pillars of wisdom are strong. The truth keeps us secure. The person of Jesus Christ, we know we can trust without fail. And so churches like that grow. And will continue to grow because they offer something the world cannot offer. I learned this in youth ministry years ago. I learned that there are certain things I could not offer. I could not compete with. I think I may have shared, doing youth ministry in Anaheim, California, 10 miles from Disneyland was not easy to do when it came to entertaining teenagers. When most of the kids in the group had annual passes to Disneyland, how are you going to compete with that? Banana night? It's not going to work. And I began to realize then and there that it's only by being different from the world that we can be an attraction in the world. And I mean in a positive way, attracting, drawing people because they look and they say, that is not like anything else I can get anywhere else. It's different. It's unique. It's not just uniqueness we're going for, however. It's the truth. And the truth is, sad to say, in this world, a very unique thing. Beyond this, there's a subtle arrogance 
to departing from Scripture and from truth and certainty for flimsy universalism. There is an arrogance there. Look at verse 1 of chapter 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. In other words, world, we don't have a clue. There is no certainty. James picks up on this, James 4.13. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will do this, or we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. That's what he's saying in the first proverb here. Don't boast about tomorrow. It's evil. It's arrogant to think that we can order our lives or direct our steps when we have no idea in and of ourselves. There is no certainty. How many of you enjoy uncertainty? I mean, how many people enjoy not having a clue what's going to happen next and being surprised at every turn? Do you like uncertainty? (laughs) Now, it may be your life, but that doesn't mean we like it. It is uncertain. Life is never certain. Tomorrow is never certain. In fact, nothing is certain except Jesus. He is the only absolute, the only certainty that we can bank on. What about the Word of God? Well, the Word of God points to Jesus, okay? Jesus is absolute. And Jesus said to us in John 14... This passage we've read many times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And so if I'm going to boast about anything, I will boast about Jesus. Because I can count on Him. He is the friend I can always count on. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8 tells us. The friend we can always count on. The friend who's preparing the place for us. So the kind of love, the kind of fellowship that we enjoy even as we come together as a church will be broadened and will be our life. And there won't be any question or wondering or uncertainty about tomorrow because there will be no tomorrow. It will just be one big eternal now being together in love with each other, in love with the Father, in worship, and and in the presence of the Son. I mean, wow. And that's what we have to look forward to. Anything else is arrogant boasting. Now again, as we go through this chapter, keep a watch out because it's all about family. It's all about friendships. It's all about relationships, and it's a manual for how to, how to navigate personal relationships. Just as Hezekiah's friend, I, I think these friends clearly meant to pull these Proverbs together in this section. Verse 2. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own lips. Not only is it a good idea not to boast about what you will do, it's a good idea not to boast about what you've done. Okay, who you are, what you've accomplished. Not only we don't just boast about where we're headed, you know, people boast about where they've been, and both are a bad idea. Both are prideful. Skip down to verse 21 because it connects really well. And listen to this The crucible is for silver 
and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded him. Interesting. This is different and yet similar to a proverb we studied on a Sunday morning a few weeks back. Proverbs 17, verse 3, which tells us the refining pot or the crucible, same word there, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold. But it's different in that it says in Proverbs 17.3, but the Lord tests the hearts. So now we've got a new take on this proverb we've seen before. Now suddenly it's not that the Lord will test the heart, it is that each is tested by the praise accorded to him. What does that mean? The word crucible, refining pot, misref in the Hebrew, is a vessel that's capable of enduring extremely high temperatures for liquefying metal, be it silver or gold. And so this this crucible, this refining pot, is used to refine. But here in this proverb, suddenly we realize a new thing. Not only does the Lord refine us, not only does the Lord sanctify us, not only does the Lord in, in His work change us and purify us in our lives, but praised us. Now check this out. This, is, this was big to me. Maybe it won't be to you, but it was to me. How you handle the praise of others will test your mettle. How you handle the praise of others. In fact, Ironside wrote, there is no hotter crucible to test a man than when he is put through a fire of praise and adulation. Now, we talked about the opposite. That the crucible of suffering... And struggling and persecution. That's, that's tough stuff. And that the Lord will often use, even the hard times, the difficulties in our lives, to change us. But suddenly now, we have a new twist on this proverb that praise will do the same thing. Praise is a crucible. And the way you handle it will determine where you are, who you are. Ironside goes on and says, To go on through an evil report, cleaving to the Lord, counting on Him to clear one's name, is comparatively easy, though many faint in such circumstances. But to humbly pursue the even tenor of His way, undisturbed and unlifted up by applause and flattery, marks a man as truly being with God. Not only how you handle struggling and persecution, but how you handle praise. When people honor you, when they praise you, when they flatter you, when they say all manner of good things about you, your reaction to praise is of itself a test of the heart. When people are praising you, you're going into the crucible. And Jesus handled it beautifully. Jesus was perfect with this. He passed this test with flying colors. Mark chapter 7, verse 36 after healing a man who was both deaf and mute. Remember what Jesus did? He gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more He ordered them, the more widely they began or they continued to proclaim it. Jesus' style, for three years of His ministry, His style all through was to say, shh, don't talk about this. Don't make a big deal about this. But you just gave me words and I couldn't talk before and now I can talk. How can I not talk about you? Don't do it. He says to the man who was once mute. In Mark chapter 8, verse 30, after Peter's confession, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He warned them to tell no one about Him. Shh. Okay, let's keep that between us. I don't know about you, but if someone said I was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I was in a particularly, you know, 
self-adulating mood that day, you know, I might say, you can let people know about that if you want to. Jesus says, keep it quiet. Mark chapter 9, verse 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus lit up in front of them on the mountain. You know, speaking with Moses and Elijah, an incredible moment of of full-on glory. It says, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Why then? Because then we would need to know. At that point, people would need to know who He was so they could put their faith in Him. But as He walked in the flesh, all the way up to the crucifixion, Jesus said, I don't want the praise of men. He ducked His head and let the praise go right to the Father. And that's good advice. And that's how we handle the crucible of praise. We duck our head and we allow the praise to go to God. Jesus put it this way, a verse I've quoted umpteen million times. And I hope you're getting it in your heads and in your hearts. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Back to verse 3. A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but the provocation of a fool is heavier than both of them. Provocation, the word there is kaas in the Hebrew and it's literally the wrath of a fool. The anger or the indignation of a fool. You see, the anger of a fool, unlike the wrath of God, is not measured. It's not considered. The fool is the one who lashes out stupidly, who flies off the handle, who is offended easily in relationships. If you happen to be that person, let me just give you a biblical warning here. You are a fool. The fool is the one who lashes out. The fool is the one who just goes off. The Lord is not that way at all. Neither are His his children. Verse 4, Wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Solomon takes it a step further. He warns of an emotion that's even stronger than anger. Stronger than losing one's temper. Because while anger and wrath explode quickly, jealousy ferments over time. You know, anger comes out, boom! And usually, I don't know about you, but but when I get angry, once I've gotten angry, it's kind of like the teapot going off. You pull it off the stove and it settles back down and then realizes how stupid it was. (laughs) Jealousy is a different beast. Jealousy is a dangerous thing because it sits under the surface. While anger is vented, jealousy is not placated until it receives satisfaction. The jealous fool is the one who says, I'm not letting go of this. I'm staying on this until I get what I want out of this relationship. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. A song that we sing, by the way. Put me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The Lord, yes, you probably know that He is a jealous God. So jealous is the Lord for you. So jealous is the Lord for me that He will not be placated until He receives satisfaction. What does that mean? He is on the march gang to save hearts and to save souls. And He is so jealous for you that He would do anything to get your attention. Whether it be the crucible of persecution or the crucible of praise, 
the challenges and struggles of life, God will use them all because He loves us so much. There is no jealousy like the jealousy of the Lord. In fact, Exodus 34.14, He says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Jealous is actually a name for Him. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad He's a jealous God? I am. It says He's passionate about me. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am the tree, we sing. You know? He's jealous for me. He cares so deeply that He will not be satisfied with anything less than me giving Him my heart. And there's only one thing that can stop Him. Only one. My will. It is His will to see every man, every woman, every child saved. But he leaves the final decision with us. And yet he's jealous. He has an undying passion for us. Verse 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now stop right there. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Open rebuke. It's better. Then someone, you know, then the, the husband who says to the wife, you've probably heard, I told you I loved you when we got married 30 years ago. If something changes, I'll let you know. You know. Don't conceal the love. Better the open rebuke. And, so, and Solomon here is highlighting the value of real friendship. A friendship that's not afraid of offending as much as afraid of the person falling off track. A friend who really cares, who really loves. A friend for whom the friendship truly matters. It's not maintained in superficial flattery, but in genuine love. He's talking about a true friend who will even wound a friend if that wounding will set them right. Have you ever heard of bone setters? Boy, I'm so glad medicine has advanced a bit. Before there were chiropractors or osteopaths or physical therapists, there were bone setters. This was an actual profession back in the Middle Ages, bone setters, and their role was to manipulate bones bones that were out of joint. So if you had a little athletic accident or something and the shoulder was out of joint, you'd go to the bone setter and they'd take a hold of you and put you back in place. If a bone was broken, it was the bone setter's job to set the bone. These were in the days before anesthesia. My, my. Can you imagine the pain? And yet, if the bone setter didn't do his job, death could come from it. The bone wouldn't regrow the correct way. Someone could end up lame for the rest of their life. And so it was absolutely critical to set the bone. Now, thankfully, we have anesthesia today. But there was pain that went into bone setting. And sometimes the, the wounds of a friend are painful to set you right, to get you walking straight. And a Christian brother and sister, listen, we speak the truth to one another in love. And sometimes it's painful. One of the real tragedies to me in the church today is when we're offended by a brother or sister, especially those who are just trying to do us right, and we just leave the church and go somewhere else. Because there are so many different options. I'll just go elsewhere. How about staying with the wound? How about staying with the person who you know loves you? who you know cares about you, and who's just looking out to set you right. That's the kind of friend Solomon is talking about. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, wounds that set us right and strengthen us because a set bone is stronger 
amazingly, even than the bone was before the break. Did you know that? When a bone is set and regrows, it actually is stronger if it's set right. And that's what we want for each other. That's what I want from you. Jesus was that kind of friend. Jesus was not afraid to wound if it would set right. Do you realize that in Jesus' lifetime, there were only two people that we know of that he called Satan? One was Satan. The other one was Peter. When Peter began to, or Jesus began to tell the apostles about his upcoming crucifixion. Son of man is going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter stood up and said, Far, God forbid it, Lord. No way, far be it from any of us to let this happen to you. We won't let this happen. And he really got up in Jesus' face. It says that Jesus turned around, Matthew 16, 23, and said, Get behind me, Satan. Ow. <laughs> to have Jesus call you Satan. I mean, that, that'll shut you up. And it did Peter. Jesus said, you are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus is the truest of friends. And He will wound if it will set us right. As He did with Peter. He'll wound faithfully. He sticks close. He's the kind of friend we're looking for. He's the one who said, John 15:12, this is my commandment that you'll love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. What did he command him? To love each other. The proof, he says, of your friendship with me is how you love one another. Don't tell me you're my friend. Show me by loving each other. That's the proof in the pudding. But there are posers. There are those for whom friendship is simply a means to an end. Back at verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. How tragically ironic. Solomon would write of the deceitful kiss of an enemy, and Jesus would one day say, Luke 22:48, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? There is a friend who has genuine love. There is a friend who loves an agenda. And Judas was such a man. The first friend who genuinely loves wounds to strengthen. The friend with an agenda flatters to wound. Verse 7. A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. You ever had like a huge Mexican dinner? And I, I love Mexican food, but I choose it because I'm not sure if there's any other kind of food on the planet that fills you up faster than, you know, beans. <laughs> he knows what I mean. And, and you know, rice and, and meat, steak and tortillas, <laughs> chips. And I love Mexican food because they bring the chips before you even order. So you're already eating. You know, you start eating before you've ordered the rest of the food. It's good stuff. But having a big Mexican meal and then having, when you're just stuffed to the gills, and, oh, that's all I can eat. And someone says, hey, would you like a big slab of chocolate cake? <laughs> now, I love chocolate cake. But to have a piece of chocolate cake after I'm full of beans is not a good idea. <laughs> For many reasons that I won't go into right now. 
This is what he's talking about, though. He's saying, here's the idea. If you're all filled up, then even something sweet like honey is disgusting to you. If you're stuffed, then you're not going to want anything else. You can't handle it. If you're completely empty and starving, it doesn't matter what it is, you'll eat it. But there's a picture here. There's something that's more subtle to it. It's all about what we fill up on. And if we are filled up on the stuff of earth, there is no room for the sweet honey of the Word. And that's a problem. It's the reason why we struggle sometimes with Bible study because our heads and our hearts are so full of the earth. So full of the beans of life. (laughs) That don't have the lasting value of the sweet honey of the Word of God. Now you might say, well Rick, that's a a nice way to put that. But to a famished man it says anything, anything that's bitter is sweet. And the Bible's not supposed to be bitter, is it? Is it? Actually, yes, the Word can be bitter. I said second hour Sunday... During the second hour, it hit me. I share with everything. The hardest thing for me about teaching through the Bible is that I have to change my behavior. And me personally, forget about all of you, no offense, but as I'm studying and I'm coming across things that conflict with how I live or decisions or choices or even attitudes, principles that I have, if it conflicts, I have two choices. I can sidestep it, not teach it, avoid it. Or I have to make a change. And sometimes I don't want to. I really, there are times, I'm telling you, that I struggle with it. Now, Cheryl and I have long conversations. I'm like, I, I, if I'm going to preach this on Sunday, you know what this means. She rolls her eyes, yes, I know. <laughs> but the change has to come. Because the Word of God can be bitter. It can be hard to swallow sometimes. Especially if I'm filled up on the stuff of earth. But John, the apostle, he had trouble digesting this book. We're told in Revelation chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And I'm not going to go all into it right now, but the little book is the Word of God. It is the Bible. And you can listen to the Revelation teaching to find out why I think that. But John said, he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hands and ate it. And in my mouth, oh, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Bible ever do that to you? Does it ever make your stomach just a little rumbly? You know, you're driving home after a Sunday just going, I don't know that I really like the way that went down. <laughs> I'm going to have to digest this a little bit. You know? And it's very true. We have words for biblical indigestion. Uh, Conviction. Compassion. What do you mean compassion? I mean sometimes the word reminds me of friends of mine that are lost. And I don't like to think about that. That's hard to digest. Sometimes the word reminds me of people who are hurting or suffering or impoverished in this world. And my eyes are opened once again to what's going on around me. And I don't know if I like how that goes down. Conviction, compassion, sometimes just plain old consternation because my life is not lined up with righteousness. And the Word illuminates that. And so sometimes, yes, it can be bitter. Now, I'll give you a little hint as to why I believe John was tasting the Bible when it was sweet going in, but bitter when it landed in his stomach. Turn over in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2. Just to the right, a couple of books. 
Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8. Because John wasn't the only one that tasted the sweetness of the word and then experienced the bitterness in his belly. Ezekiel did as well. Follow this through. It's an amazing story. Now you, son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house, speaking of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So, verse 2 of chapter 3, I opened my mouth. And he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, and it will fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. And then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And throughout the Word of God, the Bible is described that way. As sweet as honey. Sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. So we we know this picture is is becoming clear here. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. My words? Yeah, the words that you just took in that were sweet to the taste. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. What do you mean, Lord? I mean, these are people who should speak my language. These are people who shouldn't have trouble understanding my word. Verse 6, Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet, verse 7, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, Take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. And that's a verse, by the way, that we should apply to our lives every time we open the Bible. Take in all my words and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. And then the Spirit lifted me up. And I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in this place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another and the sound of the great wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away and watched this. I went embittered in the rage of my spirit. That word that was sweet as honey is already turning to bitterness in the body and the heart of Ezekiel. And the hand of the Lord was strong on me. And then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kabar at Tel Aviv. And I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. So this sweet word not only was bitter for Ezekiel, a hard pill to take, but as he began to speak the word, it caused consternation among the people of Israel. And God said, don't worry, Ezekiel, your, your forehead's hard. I've made you hard-headed for this purpose, that you keep speaking my word and speaking my word and speaking my word, even if the outcome causes frustration, consternation, difficulty for the people to whom you're speaking it. So what do you do? 
What do you do when you're studying the Word of God and the Word is bitter to the belly? Whether by compassion or conviction or consternation, it's just bitter. You've taken it in. You don't like how it feels. You don't like what it's doing inside of you. What do you do with it? You do what John was told to do. You get it out. You get it out. If it's turning your stomach, you turn around and get it out. John was told in Revelation 10.11, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Get it out, John. The word's going to taste sweet. It's going to be bitter. So get it out. Speak it. Share it. Get the word out. Back to Proverbs. So a sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. And trust this, gang, there are people who are absolutely famished. As Amos the prophet said, stumbling from here to there, trying to find something, starving for the Word of God, though they don't even realize it. Get the Word out. Get it out. Verse 8, like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. Interesting that suddenly there's a proverb about lostness that follows. A man who wanders from his home. We have have had, actually, they finally moved out, but we had some visitors stay with us a few months. If you were to walk up onto our porch, you would probably within about five feet of our porch hear a loud fluttering noise for the past two or three months. We had a mama robin who decided to build her nest right there in the eaves on our porch. Now, we've had this happen before, but I have never seen a more panicky, nervous, anxious mother bird than this robin. I mean, if, if we open the front door, off she'd go. You know, if we pulled up in the car, we'd see her, there she goes. And we kept wondering, how are her eggs going to hatch? Because she can't seem to stay in her nest. You know, if you go near her, and I told Cheryl, it's probably the dumbest place in the world for a bird to build a nest, right there on the front porch of our house. People in and out, kids running in and out all the, all the time. Remarkably, her little birds, you know, were birthed there and, and grew there, and she fed them there. But this this. Mother bird was panicked. It was hilarious to watch her. She would fly away, and then she'd fly back up onto the roof, you know, where we couldn't get at her, and she'd kind of hop a little bit closer, and if we walked toward the nest, she'd hop a little further away. And I would do this. I actually did. You know, I'd walk closer, and she'd hop back, and I'd take a few steps, and she'd hop forward, and we'd have this little game that we played, me and the Mama Robin. But the idea of this proverb and what it's saying is, this, is an idea of fluttering. Literally, the word wander here, nadad in the Hebrew, means to stray or to flutter or to put to flight. And he's saying home is it's your safe place. If you stray too far from it, you start to get anxious. You start to be unsafe or feel unsafe like that mama robin. But there's security in the certainty of home, especially... What we've been talking about, there is security in our Father's house. Amen. The place that we know is being prepared for us. The place where, boy, once we get there, you, you realize, once you are with Jesus, you will never be anxious again. Your heart will never flutter, except in excitement at seeing Him. There will be no worries. There will be no stress. There will be no concern over any of the things that we worry about or, or you know, take to flight over. None of that. Just security with the Lord. Verse 9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Back to the friends. 
Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who's near than a brother who is far away. Jesus said that where I am, there you may be also. Nearness, closeness, matters to Jesus. It's what the whole thing is about, that we would be close to Him. And in the meantime, He says, I want you close. I want the body together. I want my people together, close, encouraging one another, walking together in fellowship, in worship, sharing this life together. And the best relationships Solomon's talking about here are the ones that are close by, the ones that you can count on. That's why he says, don't go to your brother's house on the day of your calamity. He's not saying don't have a relationship with your brother. He's saying, why rush across town to a brother if you have a friend who's right there? And truly, as we've already seen in the Proverbs, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's not that blood is thicker than water, it's that spirit is thicker than blood. And in the Spirit, in the family of Christ, we are to be bound together that way, close to one another. He also says this kind of friend's counsel is as sweet as perfume. You know, we're supposed to stink good. That's kind of part of the deal. When we come to Christ, we are supposed to smell like Him. We, Our lives should give off the aroma of Christ. And that's important and significant because we live in the dunghill of the world. You know? We oftentimes have to move through the cesspool of the marketplace. It's, it's a stinking, smelly world out there. It's like an open grave sometimes that, that we have to move through. And tragically, as we began, churches that are the open churches saying, hey, let's be like the world, are just piling manure on top of manure to be like the world. You want to be like the world, then you will stink like the world. And again, the world will not be able to tell the difference between the open church, so-called, and anything else. But there is a difference when you smell like Jesus. Sweetest perfume. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Now to some people, you will smell like a funeral home. Which, by the way, isn't a bad smell. A good funeral home is going to have a pleasant smell to it. It's not going to smell like death. That's kind of they don't, you know, they want people to be comforted, you know, in a mortuary in a funeral home. But it still, it still smells like death to me, you know. But it's a nice smell at least. It's a nice, nice death smell. We should smell like Christ, is what I'm saying. We should smell like Jesus, and and it's a good aroma. I mean, don't. Don't you love getting out of the stink and the reek of daily life and coming into the fellowship of other Christians? It just kind of smells better. Even in a barn. Verse 11. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. What does that mean? Dads, if someone's reproaching you and your son is walking in wisdom, then you have an answer for them. That's what he's saying. Verse 12, a prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed 
and pay the penalty. They're just going to rush headlong into sin. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. Huh? (laughs) What? That was a weird one. What does this mean exactly? Now, we've seen this, this proverb before, Proverbs 20, verse 16. But it's, it's, it's translated slightly differently here, but it's, the same, it's actually the same proverb. It's more than a simple uh, warning against surety or collateral for a loan. This is a father-son warning against the high price of sin. Okay, now, now, stick with me. This one's it, it, it's a challenge to understand. But he, he says here in verse 13, the first part of the verse, take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. He starts by saying, if you become entwined with friends you really don't know, you can lose your shirt. Okay, Bad company corrupts good morals. You could be in trouble there. The second part, he says, and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. It ends with becoming indebted to an adulterous woman. What do you mean? He's saying you're going to become enslaved. Now, follow it through with the the verse that comes before it. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. Won't have anything to do with it. But the naive, the simpleton, proceed and pay the penalty. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. When, When he starts hanging out with the wrong people. And for an adulterous woman, hold him in impounds. And that's what happens. When we go the way of sin, we begin to lose. We begin to lose until we are in debt to it. We are held by it. And we cannot pay the price to get out of it. Paul puts it this way. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Thanks be to God, he says, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became, I like this, slaves of righteousness. You've left one kind of slavery for another kind of slavery. But this is a good kind of slavery. Because the benefits are there. Because now I'm not indebted to sin which entraps me, to the adulterous woman who would impound me. I am now indebted to Jesus Christ, whose grace has saved me. And that's what he's getting across here in Proverbs 27.13. Verse 14. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. (laughs) Are you a morning person? One of those who pop out of bed singing a jaunty tune like Mary Poppins on steroids? (laughs) I've known a few. My college roommate was like that. Man, his feet were on the floor before he even hit the alarm off button. You know, and especially when I was in college, I think I shared a little bit on Sunday my college behavior. I was a good sleeper. The sluggard. Not my roommate, Chris. Man, he just was he was full energy first thing in the morning. Good morning, Rick Cuts, a beautiful day outside. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> and I'll tell you what we did. We began to target Chris. You know, he'd come back from the shower turn on his blow dryer and the baby powder would go 
Because he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. And trust me, it was. This is another dual-leveled proverb. There's a superficial side to it. You know, the idea of, of, hey, it's the wrong time, even for the right sentiment. You know, allow blessing at the crack of dawn, no matter how well-intentioned, might not be the best time to bless. Save it till, you know, the husband, the wife, the roommate, whoever, are awake. But there's a deeper level. Because underneath the surface, this one gets political. Note again, this is the the friend who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning. Why is he doing that? So that others would hear. A loud voice, oh, hey, everybody, it's my bud, yeah! This is the friend who's looking for something, who wants something from you, kind of like Absalom. And probably a good example is Absalom had an agenda. Absalom's goal, as you know the story, Absalom, the son of David, sought to undermine his father's throne. Listen to how he went about it. 2 Samuel 15, verse 2. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. And so we're told in verse 6, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He was a bright and early blesser of people, but he had a dark and surly agenda, this Absalom. So the proverb is saying, watch out for those who are over the top in their praise of you. Be careful. Better a quiet friend who blesses not with words, but with faithfulness. Verse 15, a constant dripping (laughs) on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. And I still think when Solomon was writing these Proverbs, one of his wives had to be annoying him. This comes up again and again and again. Listen, the constant dripping here, let me just point this out, is is not like the gentle misty days here in the Northwest. You know, we wake up in the morning and we know it's just going to be one of those gray days. And it's not really raining. It's just kind of that you go outside, if you have glasses, they are immediately you know covered over. It's just that mist. That's not what he's talking about. Listen to this old description by Dr. Frank Charles Thompson, Thompson Chain, Chain Reference Bible. He wrote this about the rain in Israel. Such rains as we have had thoroughly soak through the flat earthen roofs of these mountain houses and the water descends in numberless leaks all over the room. This continual dropping, tuck, 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 all day and all night is the most annoying thing in the world. Unless it be the ceaseless chatter of a contentious woman. (laughs) Dr. Thompson. But here the proverb is also expanded. It's not only a contentious woman is like a constant dripping, but it tells about a man with a contentious wife who cannot hide it. And it's true. He who, who would restrain her restrains the wind. The truth is, guys, everyone will know if you have a contentious wife. It's not something you can keep quiet just in the home. It's, it's everybody knows. So, young men, choose wisely. Verse 17. <laughs> Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I have a phrase for this. I call it good Christian friction. Good Christian friction. 
Unlike contentiousness or, or strife, which just wears you down, good Christian friction sharpens you. It builds you up. And it can be one man to another, it can be one woman to another, but in the body of Christ there is a good Christian friction. Les and I share this, and have for years now. Not that we're contentious at all. We, boy, we are on the same page. And I'll tell you, any time that we're not on the same page, the phone's ringing one way or the other that we might get on the same page. But we have enjoyed good Christian friction. What do you think about this? Well, I'm not sure that's the right direction. And praying through it and finding common ground. And less has made me a better man for this, for good Christian friction. Now, sparks may fly in Christian relationships. And that's okay. The question is, what is the outcome of it? Am I sharper in the Lord for it? Am I stronger in my walk? Because of the friction that has come from a conversation, from working something out with a brother in Christ. But how does this work? This whole idea of, of iron sharpening iron. It's, it's not two idiots you know, comparing man, one man's foolish thoughts or ideas to another. It's not the philosophies of man passed back and forth. Note this, it's important to get. The iron being sharpened in this Hebrew saying is a sword. When he says iron sharpens iron, the Hebrew phrase is pointing out a sword being sharpened in an iron sharpener. So it's not just one metal against another causing sparks to fly. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're talking about sharpening, and the word in the Hebrew for sharpen here has to do with the sharpening of a sword. Iron sharpens iron. Just as one man sharpens another, we're talking about a sword. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother He named me, Isaiah said. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's interesting. Well, that doesn't just describe Isaiah, does it? Jesus in Revelation 19 had coming out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. The sword, you know, is the word of God. How does a man's, how does a woman's mouth become like a sharp sword when we speak the word? And if you want to have iron sharpening iron, one man sharpening another, the sharpening tool, the instrument to make us sharp is the word of God. And it is working it out together, the Word of God. But what does the Bible say about that? Well, let's think through this. Look at the verses. Let's study this together. Let's labor over this together. Even as sparks fly, we become sharper when the sharpening process involves the sword. Which is different than just, like I said, a couple of bungling humans getting together and comparing life philosophies. That's not going to sharpen anyone. The sword, the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When was the last time you sat down with someone, opened up the Bible, and struggled through a passage together? Someone you were meeting for coffee and saying, Hey, I've been reading something that I'm not getting. And I, I want to hear your take on this. I, by the way, I do this all the time with our shepherds. Anytime I'm facing a Sunday morning teaching especially that I'm struggling with or not sure how to present or, or wanting more feedback on, I take it on Thursday night to our shepherds meetings and I open it up and I say, guys, I want you to read this and tell me what you think. I want to see if I'm hearing right here. Because it sharpens. 
And it's a great tool. And, and that's, it's yet another way to use the Word of God as a tool for sharpening your spiritual life. Not just in Bible study on Wednesday night. Not just in a small group on a Friday or a Monday or a Sunday evening. But one-on-one with a brother, one-on-one with a sister in Christ, open the Bible and say, let's, let's deal with this. This is tough. I don't, I don't get this. Let's walk it out together. Good Christian friction will sharpen in a better handling of the sword of the Word of God. Verse 18. He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. Put another way, you'll eat the fruit of your labor. Take care of that which you've been given. Take care of your labor, the things you do. You'll eat the fruit of it, whether actual fruit or an honor or appreciation. Paul said in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And whatever your profession, be it a, a gardener in the first part of the verse there, or a servant in the second part of the verse, someone who cares for his master, either way, your honor will come from caring about the things that your master cares about. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible because it just blows my mind. Luke 12.37 tells us, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly, I say to you, Jesus is talking here, that He will gird Himself to serve. And He will have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Jesus, waiting on you at the table that He's prepared. What an astounding thing. Well, I don't want Jesus to wait on me. Okay, Peter, that's fine. I, you know, I, back when I was a kid, a teenager, went to Christian camp every summer. And uh, we had this tradition at camp called King and Queen Camper. And I wanted to be King Camper. I, I was hoping for that. And two or three years in a row, I just wanted to be King Camper. King Camper was decided on by the counselors and the staff, and, and it was the young man and the queen was the young woman, the two who they felt really represented Christ better than anyone else during the week. It was actually a marvelous idea because I know for me it made me want to work at it. You know, at least one week out of my summer, I was working at being a better Christian, you know? <laughs> and King Camper, I remember the, the year I wanted it so bad, and I worked so hard, you just flattering all the staff and kissing up to him and trying to do everything I could. So I could wear that crown, and my best friend, David Greer, got the crown. All right, David. The next year, I wasn't trying for it, and I got it. You're a pastor. (laughs) You know what was cool, though? I'll never forget this. We had the big table, and we had the final dinner on the Friday night of camp, and everybody was there, and I, I... was seated there beside Queen Camp Campress, and I don't even know who she was. I don't remember now. Oh no, it was Laura. Laura Greer, David's sister. And David, who was counseling that year, because he had graduated the year before, came back as a counselor, David served me. And I'll never forget that, because he was such a close friend, and it was just cool to have my friend serving me in that way. I was like, wow, this is, this is bad. If I had gotten it the year before, it wouldn't have meant anything. But it really meant something to me. So, no making fun of King Camper, Pastor Rick. But it was special. And, and that kind of, I don't know why, it just kind of popped into my mind when I was reading the verse again today about Jesus saying, I'm going to gird myself and, and I'm going to bring all my servants, those who care about what I care about, I'm going to seat you at the table and I'm going to serve you. Can you imagine 
having Jesus serve you. And it won't be embarrassing. It won't be like, oh, this is... No, it'll be wonderful. Do you have enough there? you need some more potatoes? I'll get get that for you. Let me take care of that for you. Can I refill your glass? you need some more beans? You know. (laughs) A little extra honey for the roll there. I mean, it's just marvelous. And Jesus says, I'm going to do this for you. And if you want a seat at that table, there is one absolute key. Care about what your master cares about. What does my master care about? Well, I can give you one thing. It's right here in the verse. The fig tree. He cares about the fig tree. Huh? Bible students, throughout Scripture you know the fig tree represents Israel. Israel. The nation of Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 24.32, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. And I've shared before, I am absolutely certain that Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 was the fig tree. Blossoming. Budding. When you see this happen, you know He's near. The fig tree. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday. Verse 19. As in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. And this is a very precious proverb. It's not perhaps what you might think on the surface. It's not just saying that your heart reveals what's in you. That's not what it's saying. Listen closely. It's subtle and it's obscure Hebrew, but it's beautiful. It's like water mirrors a face. So when you look in the water, you see your face. So a man sees his heart reflected in another man. You see your heart reflected in another man. What is that talking about? It's a friendship proverb. It's describing, it's defining a close friendship. How so? Your heart resonates with some people, doesn't it? We don't all resonate one with another. We love each other in the Lord, but we're not all going to be best friends. It's just the way it is. But there is someone with whom you just you connect. There's something in their heart that you, you see of yourself reflected in their heart. You're drawn to them. You want to be around them. And that's the kind of friendship that's being described in this beautiful proverb about how someone just clicks. You know, you understand their heart. They understand yours. It's a like-hearted, like-minded friend. And you know, one of the real joys, again, of Christian fellowship and friendship like we share together is the more we walk in faith together, the more our hearts resonate one to another. The more we just get each other. We walk in the room and, and we, it's, it's almost like we have a secret. It's a secret we want the whole world to know. But you can look at another believer that you're walking in fellowship with and go, Glenn, I know why you're smiling today. Less I know why you're nodding right now. You know, because you have that connection. You have that closeness. 2 Corinthians 13.11, Paul says, Brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And the more like-minded we are, the more like family we become. Amen? That's just good stuff. Verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. In other words, I can't get no. 
satisfaction. <laughs> Mick Jagger was on to something here. He had no idea. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15, the prophet Agur says, there are three things that will not be satisfied for that will never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. But here Solomon has an addition. Solomon says there is one thing that will not be satisfied, and it is the eyes of man. The eyes of man. It's talking about the appetite of the flesh. Our carnality is insatiable. It will never be enough. The things of this earth will never be enough. If we go down that road, if we choose the road of carnality, if we go after wickedness or unrighteousness or just wild, you know, open living, it will never be enough. We will always want more and more and more. 27-year-old singer Amy Winehouse, you may have heard, was found dead in her London home on Saturday. And it's tragic, not because she was such an upstanding example for our young women. She wasn't. She had a phenomenal voice. She was an incredibly talented singer, but her life was an absolute mess. And, and a picture of exactly what we're talking about. This You can never get enough. A, a news article said the following. A month ago, Amy Winehouse canceled her European concert because she was too drunk to even stand on stage. Last weekend, she died alone in her London home. Binging and erratic behavior were nothing new for the singer who penned the lyrics, quote, They tried to make me go to rehab. I said, no, no, no. Amy Winehouse went to her home last weekend with the intention of going on a binge. And she binged right into the grave. And it's tragic. And it's because... The eyes of man are never satisfied. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Remember we talked about boasting at the beginning here. These things are not from the Father. They are from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And Mick Jagger may not get no satisfaction, but if you want satisfaction, it is in Jesus alone that you will find complete satisfaction and fulfillment forever. Verse 21. Again, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded to him. We talked about that. Verse 22, in contrast to this, says, Though you pound a fool with a mortar and with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. So the opposite here, you know, the, the crucible, if you're, if you're honored, if you're praised, if you're tested by these things, it is a crucible for you. And it does measure your heart. And the wise man will come through that. The wise man is going to duck his head and let the praise go to heaven. But the fool, even if you took... The language here is cool. If you pound a fool with a mortar and with a pestle along with crushed grain. If you can imagine a stone pot and, and a, you know, the, the pestle smashing and, and trying to smash and get all the, all the grit and all the grime and all the husk out of the grain. And that's how they would do it. And he's saying you could do that to a fool. It wouldn't make any difference. He's still going to be a fool. He's just going to be foolish. 
it's a picturesque verse. It's also a tragic one because it's saying the fool is a lost cause. I thought about this just late this afternoon, about the fool as a lost cause. And you know what? That was me. I was the fool who was a lost cause. I was the fool for whom there was absolutely no hope until the wisdom of Christ came into my life. And that's every one of us. We were a bunch of lost cause fools until Jesus said, Do you want my wisdom? And in Him alone there is that hope. Now, at the close of the chapter, you may think for a moment we've turned off the main road of friendships and onto the farm. We haven't, but listen. Verse 23, Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen, and the herbs in the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing. The goats will bring the price of a field. There will be goat's milk enough for your food, and the food of your household, and sustenance for your maidens. Practically speaking, that's good advice. You know, for for good living, look after the blessings you've been given, the provision of the field, look after the flocks because they're given to you as sustenance for your life. Look after it, do a good job at work. God has given it to you to provide for you. Take care with the, the money He provides. God's given it to you to provide for you and for your family. So on that level, it's it's good. But again, another underlying truth here. We see in this. Know well the face. The word condition there is literally face. Know well the face of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. You see, the good shepherd does. Jesus does. The underlying truth is while riches fade and kings and crowns die off and grass disappears and nothing lasts and nothing satisfies and as we began tonight, nothing is certain. There is one thing who is certain and that's our shepherd The Good Shepherd Jesus. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's dependable. He's the friend we can count on. He knows the face of His flock. The Lamb will be for your clothing. Our Lamb covers us in His blood to cleanse us. The goats will bring the price of a field. Our inheritance bought, purchased, paid for by Jesus Christ. He is our sustenance now and the sustenance of those around us. Jesus is. Who knows the face of His flock. He said in John 10, verse 11, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd, He says. And I know my own. And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And He says about you and about me, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Which fold? Israel. I have other sheep who are not of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Amen.